Welcome back to the Project Alchemy podcast. I'm your host, Namish. And I'm Jack. Today we speak with Eric Bogard and Aaron Hoffman of Undercurrent. Their music management company serves to create short-term contracts for up-and-coming artists to be able to grow without signing predatory long-term deals. In this episode, we talk about how Eric and Aaron got their start running shows at Indiana University and how they took that concept and turned it into a larger business. And we hope you find the key of how they created their own reality. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We are here with the founders of Undercurrent, Aaron and Eric. So uh, we're really excited to have you guys on today. And so I want to start off with your individual but also collective story. So you both went to the University of Indiana. Uh, you're at the, the Bluebird Club promoting um, and that seems like it was your first introduction to kind of the promotion business. So take us back to that time period. Um, we'll start with Aaron and like, where was your mindset? At? How'd you guys both meet and what got you into music in the promotion and management industry as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. So Eric and I met freshman year of college. Um, we kind of had this vibe where we were both in business school. Everyone there was kind of looking for the same finance, accounting, marketing jobs. And we were like, I want to work in music. I want to do entertainment stuff. And we're kind of like, oh, yeah, me too. This would be great. So it was kind of this moment, you know, in the first six weeks of freshman year of college where we realized that we both kind of had aspirations of entrepreneurship and entertainment and, you know, getting out of just the straight business side of things. So we met, we did that, um, and we just, it led to all of these unique ventures where we went from running a marketing agency um, that someone a little bit older than us started to managing artists in Bloomington and around the world that we would find online and um, led even more into this foray of uh, the Bluebird story, which I think we should go into detail on probably. Yeah. Shout out Dave Kubiak, owner of the Bluebird. We attribute all of our success to him. Um, <laughs> we, we had this venture called Legends Card, and it was a hilarious, hilarious venture um, especially now, knowing that the same guys that founded Fire Festival had a similar kind of venture when they were coming up. And, uh, you know, that always makes us laugh. But basically, it was this metal-faced card. Might have one. And we would partner with local retail stores, um, bars, you know, clothing stores, you name it. And we'd say, hey, look, we're going to go sell this card to kids around campus, 20 bucks a pop. And we're going to have an app, we're going to have a website, we're going to do some street marketing, and we're going to offer a discount, whatever you want to offer, free bag of chips at Potbelly, I think we got them to agree to, 10% off clothing, maybe a special drink at a bar. Um, so we're going to drive traffic into your stores, we're going to sell these cards and, and keep that. And so it's a very, you know, symbiotic relationship. Um, and, you know, it went pretty well, and for, you know, for freshmen... Uh, in college, like made a few thousand bucks selling those cards, all cash, definitely helped pay for some drinks back in the day. Um, one day we walked into the Bluebird, kind of thinking, hey, how cool would it be if we could, you know, maybe get a discount on, you know, concert tickets if someone showed the card or some secret drink. He basically told us no, uh, wasn't interested at all, but he liked the spirit, the hustle, asked us if we'd like to start promoting concerts for him, which turned out to be an even more exciting business for us because now we got to go to every show that came to campus for free. He would basically just print us out. We'd go into his office around 3, 4 p.m. on a 
Tuesday or Wednesday when we were done with, done with class and he'd print us out, you know, 100 tickets and 150 tickets and say, you know, you guys sell them, keep the cash. I'm going to make money because that's more people inside buying drinks at the bar. But what he really um, wanted, he really wanted people to come on Wednesdays and nobody would yeah. go out in Bloomington on Wednesdays. And he was like, guys, I'm doing 15 cent beers. I'm losing money here. This is the best deal and nobody's coming. And in Bloomington, everyone was going out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And we we're like, okay, well, how do we get people to go out on Wednesday and not to go out on Tuesday and Thursday? So yeah. he kind of offered us, hey, here's 100 free tickets. Get people in. And Eric and I came up with the idea of, okay, let's give them to, you know, basically the hottest girls that we could find. <laughs> here's 100 tickets. And they'd say, well, we need more tickets for our other friends. And what about our boyfriends? And, and we said, and Snapchat was blowing up around campus at the time, right? And so, you know, it was it was the first sort of light bulb moment for us of, you know, how do you sort of change a social culture? Well, we gave them to these girls and we had them take Snapchats and tag the bluebird, had a little phrase, the bird is the word, and that would be on everyone's Snapchat. Before you know it, another Wednesday would roll around, another Wednesday would roll around. Now all the guys are showing up. And before we left, even that year, we had a line around the corner. People, you know, were coming every Wednesday. It only took three weeks and yeah. it, it changed the culture. Cause I remember literally like three weeks into us promoting the bluebird, the bars that were popular on Tuesdays and Thursdays started doing discounts and they started to give out tickets and it kind of became this whole competition that we were at the center of. And, uh, you know, beyond the, the hustle and the enjoyment of just like promoting and being involved in it, we were able to build a really great relationship with Dave, the owner, who we attribute all of our success to. And we got to go into his office in the back room and be able to say, all right, Dave, who we got on the calendar for next month? Who are we doing for this? And Dave would say, well, what do you guys think about this artist and this artist? And you know, we'd be able to give our input and suggest other artists. And it was really a, an incredible experience. Yeah, and we were exposing our friends and people around campus to live music, right? To local bands, to people that used to show up on a Wednesday. You'd have the same 12 locals. Uh, now they're showing up and there'd be, you know, 800 kids in the room. And, you know, it, it, it really, I think, helped some local bands and it became really, really fun. Did you guys get the then? social... Oh. Go ahead, Namish. I said, how long ago was that? That was our freshman, sophomore year. Yeah, so, yeah, so I, um, I don't know, eight years we're, ago? We're five, <laughs> we're five years at We graduated in 2017. So, okay, that's crazy. That's crazy. That was, that was a little bit ago. But my cousin just graduated from IU. Uh, tells me Bluebird Wednesday is still a thing lying around the corner. And, you know, it's, it, it kind of stuck. We actually went back to Bloomington for the first time since graduating um, probably six months ago and went to a show and went in and saw Dave and it's, you know it was amazing just to have him remember us and to explain what we're up to and to you know tell him how much he helped us kind of find our path. Wow. Were you guys able to get like, I'm just curious, like the social credibility, you were able to get so many people to go to like such an event did people know after the fact that you were the, the masterminds behind such a thing or it was like you got the ball rolling, it got it became its own thing and then it was like, well, like we get still the experience of being at the Bluebird, but people may not know that we were the ones that got this going in the first place. 
I'd say a core group of people knew, and if you knew, you knew. And there were times like I would look through my messages, and there'd be a hundred numbers who I don't have the name saved, and they'd be like, "Hey, can I get two tickets for tonight? Hey, like I'm I'm outside. Can you come let me in?" And it yeah. was like that for months. Yeah, it, it it was a bit of both. I mean, definitely our friends, the people in our community knew, and um, but you know, it got it got a lot bigger than that as well you know if you're anyone around campus you're walking around and you see a line around the corner at this kind of new spot in your head um, they're not going to know us or how the line got there but, um, but yeah in our community and it definitely sort of for Aaron and I it sort of pinned us as the music guys in the you know fraternity sorority world that we were in um, which kind of made us a little a little different and also I think helped us realize that there's a real path here. We liked being those guys. Um, so yeah, a bit of both. So from the Bluebird, you kind of got that first, like you got the first hit of the music industry. You were, you were promoting, you were getting the tickets, getting people in the door. What was the next step for you guys, whether it be a job representing artists, um, you mentioned local people, like what, kind of after you got your feet wet what was like we got to get more of this i'd say throughout that whole time we were both all over the internet on soundcloud on hype machine when spotify was just getting started with playlists we were finding new artists just to show our friends and we kind of started to dive into management really surface level at that point where we'd find artists yeah we actually so we, we found a low village they're crushing it right now too. It's that, pretty amazing. That story, I I I don't forget sometimes that story and how that led to Abi the Nomad for me. Yeah, was was a pretty I think a pretty cool and you can pull out a lot of uh, interesting lessons from from this story. But Low Village, um, Maryland rap group. Maryland rap group. We're in Indiana. You know, we find them on SoundCloud. I don't remember who or how, but you know they had a couple songs and we were just blown away you know as every we, we both are huge mac miller fans and it was kind of in that world of indie spiritual hip-hop that could relate to you know people like us right uh-huh. um so we start managing them which at the time you know we're sending emails and getting rejected and telling them which songs we think should be singles and we have no idea what the hell we're doing but we're helping and we're not taking a cut because there's no money being made so it was just fun for us um, and you know, what was so cool about that story is we parted ways when we graduated, um, pretty amicable. Aaron got a really cool job. I got a different cool job and we just, we really wanted to focus on our first job and, and not have, you know, any distractions. And so we parted ways, but it, it was a few years later that low village calls me up and says, Hey, wanted you to know, we ended up getting a new manager. Uh, this guy, Nishant, who, you know, is kind of a legend in the underground music community and discovered a lot of really cool stuff, very respected. And um, Nishant ends up managing Low Village. He gets on the phone with me. He goes, hey, I just want to hear about, you know, what you learned working with these guys and anything I, I could know, personality traits, you know, what, what helps them, whatever. And Nishant actually ended up introducing me to Abi the Nomad who is still kind of our flagship artist, my first artist I've ever managed, you know, in a legitimate way. Um, okay. When I was working at uh, UTA and, and Live Nation, some of these places, was managing him on the side. Um, so it was our first ever SoundCloud rapper in college. 
who ended up introducing me to their new manager three years later that led to our first legitimate artist who just announced a tour yesterday that's going on sale tomorrow and he's playing 20 cities and you know we expect the whole thing to sell out so it was a very cool full circle moment and i think there's a lesson there it's don't burn any bridges keep all your relationships close because you never know who's going to come back and change the course of your your life or career yeah that's insane that's um hold up i think we're just having some connection can you hear us can you yeah can you guys still hear us yeah okay i can't really even hear them it sounds like uh yeah it's like very here and there i heard the rest of the story though it's a very cool story but yeah yeah, after that hmm can you hear us now i can i heard yeah i heard you say that is this better yeah yeah yes okay Okay. cool um Um, yeah what do you guys do here i don't know where we where it cut off i was going i was going yeah so i mean we kind of yeah no we kind of heard about like the group you worked with i'm also a really big mac miller fan actually so that's (laughs) that's insane um but yeah we heard about the group that you worked with and we heard about um like how you got connected with ugly nomad and not building bridges so we kind of got we we got it (laughs) which is cool um but yeah, I think you're so right. Like we have something like Jack and I have something very similar that we go through is like we try to stay in touch with all of our guests um, because like we just want to see what you guys are up to um, as well as just like keeping it like as well as like just seeing like what opportunities are coming here and there, you know. Um, but so I'm curious. So you guys say like you guys went each to your own separate jobs. Um, can you kind of fill us in on each what each of those jobs were? And then after that kind of like how did you transition from each of those jobs to what you're doing now? And then like, what exactly is it that you're doing now with undercurrent? Yeah. So there was always this grand vision of starting a record label together before we even knew how record labels operated before we had ever met anyone at a record label. We liked the idea of being in business with artists and building a catalog and signing artists and helping just make their dreams come true. Uh, The vision after college was always, let's go our separate ways. Let's find our way in Los Angeles. Let's learn from the smartest people we can find. So, um, so far, like these stories are super interesting, especially from like the early days. Like you didn't really know what you wanted to do or you kind of had some concept and you were working on becoming kind of the best version of that learning the industry. So like, could you share with us some of those stories of like you talked about um, Little Village and like the first person you managed? Like, what were some of those like early stories of like when you first maybe got Abby and like your your flagship artist currently? Like, what was those? And like your first failure, to be honest, yeah. too. Like, like those... your first like the first time you were like, "Am I really cut out for this?" Like the first time you were like, "Is this like really stable or whatever the fuck?" Like we want to hear like kind of like those those trends like in the nitty gritty moments um, that you guys had to go through. Oh yeah, we did. We did try. We promoted a show where we bought the talent. We paid for promotion. We rented the venue. Um, we were kind of riding the high of all the success with the Bluebird, and we we're like, hey, if we can bring 
800 to 1,000 people out on a Wednesday with no effort. Let's book a real band, actually promote it, and bring out even more people. So we booked a reggae band named... Kind of re- it was like it was like ska rock yeah uh, ocean ocean alley ocean, ocean alley it was something like that yeah. um but yeah they, they, <laughs> okay. we thought they were really talented they were friends with um with a, a close friend of ours they lived in chicago so they were just going to drive up and we said all right guys we have the best setup we have this amazing venue we have people already locked in we'll put your logo on the banner we'll have a line around the block all you gotta do is show up so we had this band show up. I don't remember how much we paid them or what we had to pay for the venue, but we did have to pay out of pocket for these expenses. And we promoted it as best we knew how. We told people we used Snapchat like we did before. And the day of show comes and there's nobody around the block. There's nobody in the venue. Um, and it was just one of these things where the band was kind of like, all right, guys, like you said, it was going to be like this. Like, where, where are the people? You know, I think it was mom's weekend or or like formals, a lot of out-of-town formals, and we, we didn't plan or really think through it enough. We just figured it'd be another Wednesday. And so we got a lot of texts being like, hey, guys, so sorry. No, this is like your first show you're putting on, but like I literally am not in town, and I can't go. And so it, it completely flopped. These guys drove from Chicago to Bloomington, and that was – definitely uh eye-opening experience for us of like the funniest thing to me about that experience though is like after the show because we were like we were starting managing low village we wanted to you know build our own company and see where we could take it and so we had this failed show and then we're like all right guys like we can help take your career to the next level they're like why would we work with the guys that just brought us into this show where nothing happened and we tried to basically manage this band and they said no and it was kind of a reality check of like why would they not want to work with us like that's that's ridiculous we're great like come on what's going on here and it was just one of those things where like oh man like maybe we do need to learn from smarter people for a bit before we take this seriously and build our own company so what happened after that um after that we so then we're talking about like junior senior year of college um the era where everyone is obsessed with getting internships i think especially in business schools everyone is trying to get their internship seven months before summer even starts and eric and i are sitting here um you know there's not even applications open for entertainment internships until two weeks before summer so everyone's and, talking and in indiana these opportunities you know just aren't available Right. Yeah, we had no resources. All of our friends, you know, when you go to a, a career fair, uh, when you go to anything at Bloomington, you know, at the Kelly Business School, it's big four accounting, it's Kellogg and corporate giants, P&G. Um, you know, Aaron and I remember going into like the career coach office and, you know, saying, is there anyone or any relationship that anyone has to help us get in front of anyone even close to the entertainment business? And it was just, it was just non-existent. You know, it just, it was on no one's mind. And so we really had to sort of figure it out ourselves. To make it even more confusing, we both studied abroad and lived in Barcelona for the second semester, our junior year. And we were of like, course. okay, you know, <laughs> if we can't find a job, we might as well look for it while we're in Europe. So we spent six months out there and didn't really stress about what we would do over the summer until the very end. And I remember I had... Um, what I thought was a Sherlock. I had worked for a company the year before called Recess. 
they were right on Venice Beach. They were doing a Mark Cuban funded, um, they called it a music and idea career fair. So they were traveling around the country to different college campuses. They were doing a career fair for entrepreneurs and bringing um, artists along on the road with them. And the, the past summer I'd worked with them, they brought the chain smokers on their first tour and they said, all right, you're gonna come out again this next summer. So I thought I had a Sherlock and about two weeks before the summer, um, they were like, hey, you can still come out, but we're not able to pay you. And I wasn't able to make that work. So we kind of were on our last leg, like looking for opportunities. Um, and thankfully, Eric was able to get through how many rounds of interviews with, that was NBC, NBC. right? Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of, you know, almost won the lottery in a sense in terms of, you know, didn't have any industry relationships growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, just wasn't a thing, wasn't on our radar. And so I just applied through the, you know, corporate uh, application process online to NBC Universal. Um, and, you know, it was like four or five rounds of interviews. And I remember sort of on one of my phone interviews, really just trying to level with the girl because it was, you know, she, you could tell she's reading from you know, question A, B, C, taking notes. And I was just like, look, there's nothing I'm going to say here that's going to make me have a relative that lives in Los Angeles that works in this industry that's going to actually change your mind. But give me a chance. And I'm not going to hang up the phone until you say on this call you're going to give me a chance. And she was like, look, I can't promise you anything on this call. Yes, you know, it has to go through more rounds. But, you know, I really like uh, I really like your spirit. And, and so she ultimately kind of flagged my application and, and sort of pushed me through. And she was like, look, this isn't what you want to do, but I have a market research and insight international job at NBC. Um, but it gets you here. It gets you to LA. It puts an entertainment brand on your resume and it gets you one step closer. So I took it without, you know, thinking twice. And it was, uh, it was kind of a brutal summer of reading spreadsheets about, you know, audience ratings on the Kardashian reality shows. Um, but, you know, I met some friends I still have today and it got me to LA and it kind of got me in the scene and I was able to meet some people that ultimately helped me, you know, continue to move closer to where I wanted to be the next summer. Yeah, that's the crazy thing. It's like sometimes you just have to do things that um, might not be your dream, but might get you one step closer. And if it does, like, you just have to do this weird thing where you, like, sit and just have blind faith in yourself. And, like, we talk about that so much. It's, like, one of those things, like, especially when you're young, right, and you have no idea what, like, what the fuck's going to go on. It's, like, sometimes you just got to stare at yourself in the mirror and just convince yourself that it's right. And, like, you just pray it is or, like, hope it is. And most of the time it will be, but you don't, you just never really know. Yeah, for, for us early on, it was a lot about saying yes to everything and failing quick and those two principles of accepting opportunities that are in front of you and if you have an idea not just lingering with it for months or years but either driving it into the ground as quick as possible or driving it into the sky as fast as possible um, still principles that we use today in our company yeah you, you it's so interesting as an entrepreneur you know it's, yeah. it's the one thing i think that separates people that end up starting their own businesses from the people that don't. It's just the blind faith that I think somehow we just both were born with and woke up with and wake up with every morning. That's like, yeah, I can do this. I mean, 
kind of like the band. We, we completely flopped on that first show we tried to promote, but we still looked him in the eye and said, we can manage you and we'll be good at managing you. And it's because even with a, a failure, we still genuinely believe that. And if you don't, you know, you're, you're never going to be successful in this industry. Well, That's the best pair with an artist too, is like, artists like like are they have they you have to have the same when we interviewed abby he literally said he was like if you just look at the stats of like artists in like just in general like what something like sixty thousand songs are uploaded to spotify every day if you look at that and you're like yeah, yeah, yeah i'm better than this like you have to be just a little bit crazy but like it's good crazy like you got to do it to get it to get through because otherwise you won't yeah, yeah percent. it's funny you mentioned like the the concert that you promoted that kind of just like totally flopped because recently one of my close friends who I think he's at like 60 to 80,000 listeners a month right now, he's got a song over like a million listens, like getting some success and he, and he's like definitely growing in his own craft, but he had his first concert and he like sold tickets to a ton of friends. It was going to go awesome. And then right for the concert, it was like he was like, all right, I got two and a half hours. There's like six or seven people. It's kind of like a, a local type show. And the guy goes, okay, you're on next. Like two hours before he's supposed to go, only like 10 people out of like the 50 that he got to come were like there yet, like including myself. And he ends up going on early. They cut his set short by 10 minutes. And then when he was talking to the manager, like they kicked him out of the place and they like kicked out his brother, whatever. And I'm like, you got to go. And I was like, like they're going to regret this number one because I think he has a lot of potential to grow in the industry. But then sure enough, his brother who recorded the whole, like all the interactions and everything posted on TikTok, gets like close to 2 million views and gets him like more promotion recognition that that concert possibly could have if it went well. And because it went poorly, like he got all this positive recognition from a bad situation. Um, and yes, it wasn't exactly like your story and, um, and those guys are actual jerks and like cut them off stage and you guys are great guys that just had a tough situation, but it is funny. Like you have such a zoomed in perspective of what's going on in your life at the time. You don't have that long-term messaging of like, yes, like it is important to have success now and figure out how to improve very quickly and rapidly, but it doesn't mean that like, just because you had this insane like tough situation like you guys have easily could have said i'm done i'm not going to go into the music industry but you took that failure as just like a bump in the road and then now you're managing like five six seven years later and, and doing a pretty good good job at it yeah i think a big thing is just smiling through adversity and there's definitely people who when they get hit with something like that it's like oh man uh i guess that was fun but you know who knows and I think Eric and I both are able to have failures and then just kind of laugh about it and move on within an hour and, you know, go from there, which I think you, you need to, especially in entertainment, even more so in music and working with artists. Yeah, and, and it, it's not to say that we haven't had moments of, you know, oh shit, this might all come crashing down. And, you know, I, and, and you know, a lot of conversations with, other entrepreneurs and founders, it, it seems to be a similar pattern where it's almost that exact moment where it feels like your back's against the wall, you're in a corner, you have no idea how you're going to fight your way out, that the universe sort of responds, gives you that first break, and then it seems to sort of snowball from there. Um, 
our story is, is absolutely no different. You know, undercurrent didn't really hit its stride um, until middle of COVID. You know, I was back home, living at home because I took a shot and left a job at Live Nation, followed Abby the Nomad on the road, was going to start with Aaron, you know, our artist management business. COVID hits, all touring is completely shut down. So now as an artist management business, we essentially have no revenue coming in. Um, and, you know, back against the wall, living at home, saving money, refusing to quit, refusing to give up. Parents every single day at the dinner table saying, why don't you get a job in real estate? You'd be great at real estate. I have a friend in medical sales. You'd be awesome in medical sales. You know, all these sorts of things. And Aaron and I just kind of always had that blind faith, even when it got really, really difficult. Of like, man, we need to figure this out soon. Um, and it, it, that's when things started to sort of pick up for us. And we were able to sign more artists and we started, you know, the influencer marketing division. We were really, really early to TikTok. And, um, you know, started informing the business and, and growing and expanding from there. But um, yeah, we, we definitely have had the moments of doubt, but as long as the moments of conviction outweigh that, you know, you're going to be fine. Yeah, it's always like when you're right about to quit when things start looking up because that's when, that's when your back's against the wall, 100%. Um, so I'm, uh, Jack and I are super curious. Let's talk about Undercurrent um, itself. What makes you guys different from like every other evil record company out there? Yeah, I would say great, that way, was... <laughs> great way to introduce that, by the way. <laughs> so it took us a while. And, and I think where we really hesitated in starting the business was in answering that question of like, okay, how do we not end up being another evil record company? How do we do something that's artist friendly? And it took years of me working at a small independent music management company and record label called Third Brain and Eric going from Live Nation, United Talent Agency, Maverick, Human Resources, all these huge companies um, to compare notes every few days and say, all right, what are you learning here? What are you learning here? And we were working for some really brilliant people. And we kind of found this gap in the market where we realized there's a lot of new artists every day coming out who don't have managers, who don't have labels, who don't have funding, who don't have any sort of team at all, and don't want to sign a shitty long-term deal in order to get those things. And we said, okay, what if we come in, we are managers at heart, we can wear that hat at any point, but we can build the infrastructure of an independent record label and distributor, and we can get creative in the deals that we structure. And for us, really, it was about structuring deals and building out this value offer that made us feel like what we were giving is different and what was actually needed. And it came from representing independent artists for so long and realizing, hey, this is what we want people to offer us. Let's just reverse engineer it and build it. So we spent the first part of building out undercurrent music by saying, okay, how do we find the best partners? How do we craft the best artist-friendly short-term deals? And how do we listen to artists when they say, this is what I want, or this is what I want, and make sure that there isn't just this one-size-fits-all mentality. So I would say the differentiation comes from us being managers at heart and building the infrastructure of an independent company that managers would want for their artists. And being flexible and friendly, I think, is a really important thing as well, where like a lot of the big evil record company stories are people that are in deals and they're never let out or people that, 
you know, they have, uh, they just get taken advantage of because they don't have a lawyer. Their and music gets shelved or they lose creative control or all of those things. You know, our, our deals, artists own all of the masters. We do short-term licensing deals where the artist gets a greater piece of the pie than we do. Um, fundamentally, it's a worse business to be in than owning masters for perpetuity and being able to sell a big catalog. But, you know, that really was never our goal. You know, our goal was to provide real value, be artist friendly, and we assumed, and it's starting to work and pay dividends now, we assumed if we did that, we would build a positive reputation in the industry that would start paying dividends in a different way. Um, and so from day one, we, we built the business to answer the very same question you asked of how do we form a business where it can still be a business and support us, but also not be an evil record label company. And honestly, the deals we're doing are so far from record label deals that there's probably another word for the way we're operating um, that you know we're really not even a record label. Um, we're, we're partners to artists and we provide digital marketing, we provide influencer marketing, we provide distribution, funding, you know, strategy, um, while the artists still maintain ownership. It seems like that's also the biggest way to maintain loyalty. Like you see with all these big record labels is that they always want to have everything. And so as soon as the artist can lead the record label, they do. Like, why not have them under you for their whole career if they really enjoy partnering with you and like even though it's a short-term deal and they could leave every couple of years if they wanted to or however long you structure it they're more likely to stay with you because you have their best interest in mind and they can leave it like seems like the way you set it up they some artists will leave for sure but the way you guys are setting it up builds such loyalty and trust within how you operate it seems like it just makes sense that people over time will stay with you for that reason yeah, and we want to work with people who want to work with us. Like, it doesn't sound like fun or enjoyable for any party to be in a situation where nobody wants to be there. Yeah. And just like you said, there are artists that we've released a few songs with or worked with for a brief amount of time. And we do view ourselves as a sort of springboard and stepping stone from being fully independent to doing your major record deal or whatever your goals are. And we're completely comfortable with that it's almost good that you kind of like know your know your place is the wrong or like wrong phrase for it but almost like that's the only phrase i can think of it's almost like you guys very specifically like i guess like know your niche and like know your exact role and what you want to be um and that like makes it so transparent to your artists as well and especially kind of like what jack was saying there's such a combative nature with record labels um in the industry right now artists um but how do you like you guys are saying it's able to sustain yourself, but how do you like make, how do you how do you make enough off of that? Are you are you exploring other routes and like like or essentially like what does innovation look like in that kind of industry? Because um, it's been pretty typical of the same for maybe the past twenty years. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, there are are ways to make money in this industry and, and as a distributor or record label, whatever you want to call us, that don't have to involve making more than the artists. And realizing that, you know, you can still have a good business and not take advantage of artists. Um, the other thing is we have an even more specific niche of the type of artists that we work with 
that were able to monetize in multiple ways, not just through their records. So, you know, Undercurrent at its core is a creator company. So the artists we work with, the influencers we work with, you know, everyone is a prolific content creator. And so we have a huge brand partnership, marketing agency division that's able to put real dollars in these guys' pockets for monetizing their social media pages that they can then in turn use that money and we can use that money to market the records. So, you know, working with the creator artists, we're able to bring in those opportunities. Um, and then again, you kind of said it, but if you're giving the best deal in the marketplace, there's no reason for the artists to want to leave. So Abby the Nomad is a great example of an artist who, you know, is now, you know, distributing his music through us. Um, and he's an artist that will never sign to a major label. I'm fairly confident in saying that because he's built such a successful independent business with us together where he's making six figures in revenue from his independently owned streaming catalog and then additional money on top of that with touring and merchandise and other creative things we've done, whether it syncs, etc. So, you know, we've kind of proven the case study with Abi that, you know, he has a partner in us. You know, we've had, you know, made a great business with Abi. He makes most of it, but as label owners, as managers, we're able to work with multiple artists. So, you know, it doesn't take too much math to figure out if we have five artists as successful as Abi and that's our business, we're making as much as an artist is making, yet they each get really fair deals. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's definitely a way to have an awesome business, make a lot of money, but also have artists feel really good about the partnership. 100%. Um, so I'm super curious, what do you like, so you're talking about the niche and the type of artists that you are like working with. What do you look for when you're reaching out to artists? Um, like I know you're just saying someone who's not going to sign independently, but also just in terms of like potential, um, for growth, what do you, what are you looking for in that? Yeah. And what do typical record labels look for? And like, how does that differ? So that's a great question. I would say that what typical record labels are looking for is data-driven, especially the past few years. It's, okay, how fast are you growing? How fast are you? Are your streams growing? Your socials growing? Are people creating content to your songs? All of that stuff. And we feel it as the management side of things. When we put out a song for a new artist, nobody reaches out for the first month. There's an uptick. And then instantly we get hit up by a&R from every major record label and a ton of indies. And it's like clockwork for every artist we've worked with. It's data-driven. There are still a lot of people that are A&Rs at majors and indies who have incredible taste, but a lot of it has to be backed by data. We're being independent and being able to make our own decisions allows us the freedom to say, we really love this artist. We're going to take a bet on it. And when we first started the company, that was all we were doing. It was really taste driven. And we said, we want to represent things that we're passionate about, music that we want to listen to. And, you know, if we like it, we can work on it. If we see a vision, we can work on it. And it took a lot of trial and error to understand our positioning in the market because we would put things out and it wouldn't do that much. And we'd ask ourselves why. And on the other side, we're working with a handful of social media creators who are getting millions of followers and likes and comments. And, you know, it clicked for us that we need to work with artists who natively, naturally, and powerfully can promote their own content and who can promote their own music, who can create content, all of that stuff. 
Um, and it really opened the door to the business model that Eric was just explaining, where we realized that we want to work with creator artists. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to make a certain type of content, but as long as you're trying, as long as you're promoting yourself and doing your best, and as long as you have great music that we appreciate, we'd love to work with you. And it's kind of just, we boiled it down really to those metrics of, are you a content creator? Are you doing your best? And do you make high quality music? That's awesome. And is the music I, different? I think there's a lot of yeah. situations where we've heard something and been like, oh, this is cool, but it sounds exactly like this person. And, you know, yeah, there's a sure. ceiling to, to sounding like other people. And for us, even if it's a little left of center, if it sounds different, it excites us. No, absolutely. Having, having a unique sound is so very important. And, and for your guys' credit, you guys have a unique enterprise, a unique business. And uh, before we end in a couple of minutes, I really just wanted to ask you, um, selfishly, but also for people listening, um, our listeners are kind of where you guys were at four or five years ago when you were uh, at that college age, but also like really ambitious, trying to figure yourself out. And so I kind of wanted to ask you guys to put yourself in the shoes of someone like right now that maybe they don't want to get into management, but they, they want to do something uh, working with people, working with whether it be music, whatever it may be. What are just some like, it may sound very vague, but like, just some, some tips or words of advice that you can offer for that person that's trying to maybe get into this entertainment industry in kind of like this new wild, wild west that um, we're seeing as the past like two years has really shown us. Yeah, I, I think the most powerful thing for me personally was the power of cold outreach and research and learning and just taking time to absorb what's going on, who the players are, and realizing that you can DM anyone on Instagram. You can email anyone you can find. You can make a list of your top 100 favorite artists, find all their managers and email them asking for a 15 minute phone call. And you'd be shocked how many people will respond and be positive and be excited about it. And a lot of the relationships that Eric and I built, especially early on, came from us just starting as fans, and reaching out to people and meeting people and going to hang out with them and meeting their friends and going to events and really just putting yourself out there because your power, the power of your network is really everything, especially when you're getting started. And in addition to that, just trying things. Like if we didn't try to manage Low Village, if we didn't try to promote the show, if we didn't try to get these internships that seemed impossible at the time, we wouldn't have had any of the knowledge or experience needed to get to this point. Yeah, to, to add to that, the biggest thing that I've learned and that I tell people anytime I'm asked this is you have to be a self-starter and you have to just go on your own. The way you get that job, the way you get that attractive internship, the way you get that artist um, is by already doing it, right? So the first thing they're going to ask you at you know a really competitive entertainment industry job is what separates you. And the biggest thing that we could tell is the story we told you guys of well, we're already promoting shows at the Bluebird. We're already managing artists locally. We're already doing this stuff. We're not doing it very well. We're trying. But the fact that we were using our free time to build, to try, to just get our hands dirty and do it without asking permission, without waiting for someone to give us the job with the title that says we're supposed to do it, it's never been easier to be a manager. It's never been easier to have an online business. It's never been easier to start something. 
that you guys started this podcast off of cold emails and saying you want a podcast and you know we're having this conversation. Um, that is what anyone at this level in this industry is going to look for because there are some walls that are put around this industry. A lot of people want to come from all around the world and work in entertainment. They want to work in music and they want to work in TV and film and it's, you know, it's sexy, it's attractive, it's, it's not a banking job, right? So it's not the easiest to get in, but once you're in, you're in. And the way to get in is just to start. Don't ask permission. Just start in any way you possibly can. 100%. Okay, so just wrapping up, um, we ask everyone that go- comes on the podcast two questions. Frankly, I wish we could have spoken for more time. There's so many other things we're going to pick uh, you guys' brains on, but there'll be another time, I'm sure. Um, and so we're kind of modifying this first question for you guys. Um, so the first question is going to be for each of you, what are, uh, one to two artists that got you through like your formative years, you could say, whatever you want to define that as, uh, we can go Aaron and then Eric. Well, that's not fair. Cause it's the same artist. Yeah. I think, I think we can, we can collaborate on this answer. And okay. Say, go crazy then. <laughs> like Mac Miller changed both of our lives. And I think from the very beginning, it was the first concert I went to. It was the first time I smoked weed. It was the first time that, you know, I, I did certain things with my friends. Every album, I remember where I was at in my life. It kind of designated the, that portion of my life. And it was a really interesting experience to go from having that relationship with an artist at home and then going to college, a completely new place where I knew nobody and meeting my best friends who feel the same exact way about it. Um, you know, we could, we could do a complete hour on Mac and the, the <laughs> that'll be our next one. Cause I think I could also do an hour on Mac. So yeah. that's going to be our next one. Favorite, favorite album, or okay, I'm not going to say, I can't restrict you guys to one favorite album, but like favorite, maybe one or two or three albums by him. Uh, faces is a personal favorite, which I guess technically was a Larry Fisherman project, but to me, it was completely unfiltered, a stream of consciousness, just so different and raw and edgy. And it felt like you really understood him, even at his darkest. That was definitely his darkest project by far. Um, but to be able to go through something so dark, you know, depression, drug abuse, and everything he was struggling with, and to create a body of work and art from it, that always blew me away um I mean, the dude was literally high on coke and acid and was still able to make beautiful music and you know that's prolific and it's sad how it all ended but um yeah i think that that album is incredibly special i i can't say my favorite album i can name my favorite songs off of each album but i i really connected deeply with swimming in circles <laughs> and like the fact that, you know, every every album I love more than almost any other album by any artist, but the fact that at the end of his life, he reached this place where he was making timeless music that was, you know, it was way beyond hip hop and what he was doing before. And it was just really powerful um, to see the direction he was going in. It's sad to see it cut short, but yeah. So the last question that I have for, for both of you today, um, and we'll start with Eric this time, uh, is if you could go back and give one piece of advice to your teenage self, what would it be? 
one piece of advice. I only get one. <laughs> I I uh, only get, if you want to do one. more than one, like go crazy. Um, man, one piece of advice. I would say we keep the tough questions to the end. <laughs> yeah, I I would say don't worry so much about the the end goal. Um, there is a point, and I'd still, I'd say I may be more guilty of this than Aaron of, of, you know, always had a vision and always have, you know, I have really big plans for what we're doing. And I feel we're 2% of the way there. I always have. So have a little bit more gratitude for the small wins and accomplishments. And, you know, even, even in this conversation, which is one we don't have very often, right? Recounting our entire story. It's put a big smile on my face thinking about where we started and how goofy and inexperienced it was to some of the accomplishments we've had. And, and you know, even though uh, if you zoom out, it's like, man, like, you know, we're a couple kids from the Midwest who, you know, when I first went to L.A., my parents put me in this gated community because they thought L.A. wasn't safe. And no one from my family had ever moved away from St. Louis for longer than a weekend or a trip. And so. To come from that to where we are now, have like accomplishing the, the first dream and goal we set out to when we met each other freshman year of college, which was to start our own music business. Um, even just that, you know, should feel like a big accomplishment. So, yeah, having a bit more gratitude for and, and doing this more, right? Reflecting more um, at every age, and especially, you know, at a younger age too, because. Um, Every step of the way, you know, you've accomplished a lot to get where you are, and it's very, very easy to forget that. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful answer. I'll start by seconding that one. Um, honestly, like, I, it, it's a tough question to answer, but I would say that the best thing that I could tell myself just to be open to everything. And I think that in the past, you know, you ebb and flow and do an okay job with it, do a poor job of it. You go over the top, you, you know, you become a recluse for a while, but there's so many opportunities for experience, for relationships, to meet people, to do things, to try things, to fail at things. Uh, when you're a teenager, when you're in college, all of this, and it's all before things get very real. And I wish I would have tried and failed more. I wish that, you know, Eric and I would come up with new business ideas every single day and we can count on one hand the ones that we saw through to the end. And I think that, you know, there's value in knowing what to pursue and whatnot, but fail, try things, get dirty, meet people, do everything you can. Like there's there's never gonna be a time where you regret trying anything. So, you know, I I think that that's probably the best advice that I would give a teenage version of myself get out of your comfort zone a little bit, you know, get off. Well, get off your phone. I second that one as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Aaron and Eric really appreciate you giving us your time today. It's been super eye opening talking to someone. We've talked a lot to a lot of artists, but talking to people that are partnering with these musicians and, and helping see their dreams through, um, has been, has been really awesome, um, for both Amish and I. So we really appreciate it. Absolutely, guys. Thanks for having us on. Of course. So that's 100%. it for today's episode of the podcast. As always, guys, peace.